invite you to be turning to Matthew chapter 2 if you have a Bible. Um, We're going to examine for one last time the life of Joseph with intentions of really seeking out and reflecting on God the Father um, and the Lord Jesus. And I've been very intentional about prefacing my sermons in this Advent series, Reflections of the Father, is a look at, yes, the life of the earthly father of Jesus, but the Bible's not about Joseph. <laughs> it's about God. And, uh, and so I believe when we come to the Scriptures, we primarily come to learn about God, period. That's why this little title here is Twofold in Meaning and Purpose. We've really trekked through almost the majority of Scriptures where Joseph is featured, Together, perhaps the only scripture left uncombed featuring Joseph that will that we didn't touch on will be more material in Luke 2 when Jesus is presented at the temple or when Jesus is 12 years old at the temple. So if you want to look there for yourself, if you're really curious, you're able you hopefully have a Bible. (laughs) Um, But we're studying this this passage in, in a timely fashion because everything leading up to last Sunday and last Sunday night was studying chronologically lots of things leading up to and ending with the birth of Jesus. And today, we study a very significant, also very dark episode that takes place after the birth of Jesus. It's found in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23. So I invite you to stand, if you're able, one last time with me, and let's read through this together. So... We read, uh, talking of the wise men, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he had saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, we come to this passage and we see many things happening. Um, Our hearts can grow heavy to, to feel the devastation of the loss of children. We have questions. That's why we trust that your spirit wrote these words and that same spirit can interpret them and give them to us today as the daily bread we need. 
So, Father, I pray that you would be the one speaking and not I, that you would get me out of the way. I pray that your son Jesus would be glorified and the body would be edified. Father, may we take these things to heart and use them in our lives. We ask and pray all this in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. may be seated. On Facebook, they... uh, they give you anniversaries. Uh, sadly, I've discovered that I've been on Facebook, I think, for over 10 years now. And, uh, but also they give you friend anniversaries. If you become a friend with someone on a given day, they'll pop up on your screen and say, you may have been friends in real life for longer, but you two have been on Facebook together for such and such time. And I thought it was ironic that on the day of the birth of Jesus, Christmas Day, I saw that I was friends with a man, I think for 10 years now, who I debate with all the time on Facebook because he's an atheist. And, uh, I mean, we debate in good heart. We actually had some really good discussions recently, and we don't really pick on each other except for with gesture. You know. But one time he began to present to me the idea that because of, because of what I believe about Jesus being God, it is illogical for me to say that he truly suffered on the cross. And he says this because if we believe that he is truly, fully, 100% God, then he, in essence, says the atheist, wears a Superman suit. (laughs) Because if he resurrected from the dead, then we know he really isn't the same as us because he's fully God. And what this equation is missing, though, is the fact that Jesus is fully man. He's fully God, and He's fully man. I said last week that this is nowhere better presented, perhaps most evident, in His incarnation, in His birth. Here is Mary going through what every mother who gives birth on planet Earth has always gone through. And Jesus, God in the flesh, Savior of the world, is given to us in the form so familiar to us, the form of a newborn baby. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Think about time, that the next time you hold a baby. <laughs> Jesus, like that. And there is another added element, though, that we have to consider concerning the life of Jesus, though. We must profess and believe and know that he's fully God. We must profess, believe, and know that he's fully man. And we must know that the Scriptures have foretold his life And that Jesus has a certain destiny, if you want to use that word, to fulfill. Namely, his glory on the cross. He is fit for that role. Well, now we've got to do some even deeper thinking. Some of you are like, I already have a headache. Please stop. (laughs) But we're going to be doing some deep thinking here. We're entering into the battlegrounds where theologians begin to do battle. So I'm going to try to stay as simple as I can for our purposes. So here's what's relevant. Again, you and I have to believe that Jesus did suffer on the cross. Suffer, as in the pain was real, the suffering was real, the infliction of pain really hurt. Furthermore, you and I have to believe that the temptation in the garden for Jesus was real. The wrestling was real. Father, let this cup pass from me. Jesus truly wanted to evade the cross. Jesus truly wanted to forego the pain he knew coming. Now, I say all that. It's not that because he lacked love for us. Ultimately, 
I would say it was his love to the Father and his love for us that made him go through with it. Nevertheless, he showed again his humanity that he didn't want to do the pain that he knew was coming. And it was a real wrestling, it was a real surrendering, and it was a real anguish as he sweated drops of blood. It was really up in the air. (laughs) Do you hear that? Jesus was in the garden sweating drops of blood, praying that the crucifixion would not take place. We have to admit or we have to come to grips to know that what the Scriptures say about the four ordination or the plan before the ages began that Jesus would go through with it, we also have to profess that Jesus is truly man, thereby, as the author of Hebrews says, he has been tempted in every way we are. So what does that mean? Jesus had the option to sin. (laughs) Jesus had the option, period, but he chose obedience, but he had the option. So you and I, we we read the Bible front to back. We know the story. And I think if you're honest, we identify more readily with people who aren't perfect, right? People who aren't Jesus. But let us never forget that one of the the greatest realities of Jesus is that he is God become man to identify with us. Which brings me back to this. The option was open for Jesus. Thank goodness he chose obedience and he surrendered. I say all of this to say that when we come to our passage today, it's easy to lose the urgency. (laughs) It's easy to lose the reality of danger. It's easy to minimize because we know the end. And let me say it this way. Does anybody else in here like to watch movies over and over and over at times? Any of you like that, but be honest, if it's a thriller... If it's a movie that has twists, turns, and near-death experiences, you're just a little less anxious, even the second go-around, because you know how it ends. Well, we come to a passage this way, if we're not careful, but we have more reasons to be less anxious than just knowing how it ends. We, we can wrongly assume that Jesus was in no real danger here. The same way that my atheist friend minimized Jesus' crucifixion. We might think, oh, Jesus is God, and of course the Father would protect him, and Jesus had to die for our sins, so of course he wouldn't die this way. And we can be quick to minimize the danger here, so we'll talk about that as we go through together. So with all that being said, we we begin in verse 13 again. It says, Now when they had departed, the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So some of you need to go home and fix your nativity sets. (laughs) I'm just bummed every time I see another animated story about the nativity, or I see a movie or a Christmas card, and what do they do? They have the wise men and camels right there next to the manger. Not at all how it happened. We go back earlier in Matthew 2, what does it say? The middle of Matthew 2, 9 says, Uh, And behold, the star that they, the wise men, had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Well, where is that? The manger? The cave where Joseph and Mary were having the baby? Well, no. Verse 10 says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. The house is where they're at. 
In fact, it's estimated that Jesus is almost two by this point. Joseph and Mary have been in Bethlehem for quite some time. We don't know why the reasons why they stay there. Some speculate that perhaps Joseph and Mary were thinking Jesus should be closer to the temple. Maybe that's part of his role as the Messiah. Some wonder if Joseph and Mary were enjoying the fact that they were kind of strangers in Bethlehem, 90 miles away from Nazareth, where Mary was showing before she and Joseph consummated their marriage. So some likely thought that Mary and Joseph were maybe just trying to get out of being reproached. Maybe Bethlehem was offering them a clean slate, being strangers. We don't know why they were staying long in Bethlehem, just some ideas. But it had been some time after Jesus was born. The wise men came when Jesus was a year or so older. Matthew 2.12 tells us that the wise men are wise to Herod's evil intentions, so they leave without his knowing. Herod, though, is bent on finding Jesus, so an angel warns Joseph. Just go with me, if you can, to Joseph's perspective. See, Joseph had been told who Jesus is. And I believe between the angelic encounters, the shepherds telling Joseph and Mary what they heard, uh, prophets named Simeon and Anna at the temple telling them who Jesus is, the wise men showing up to worship Jesus, I would say Joseph is getting a pretty well-rounded picture of who Jesus is the Son of the Most High, the Son of David, the Holy One of God, the Savior of sins for His people, the consolation of Israel, the King of kings, the peace and goodwill to all men, the child born unto everyone. Perhaps Joseph could even be thinking about Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus already. And so already in Joseph's mind he has to realize, or maybe he's realized from the first mention of who this boy would be from the angel in his dream, whoever he is, He's not going to be just another boy, (laughs) just another man in the world. He's got loads of heralding from angels, and he's got God as his father. But even with all this, guess what happens? An angel shows up and gives the most interesting news. The child's in danger, Joseph, and I'm tasking you with protecting him. Do you hear the urgency in that? See, the weight of prophecy and God's foreordination and, and God's plans for this child are in the background, but suddenly it all becomes contingent. It all becomes under danger because of Herod and Joseph's, the man being tasked to protect Jesus from Herod. Herod's reputation precedes him. The mere mention of his name, searching out a child he barely knows exists to murder him, probably wouldn't surprise Joseph. Herod was notoriously overprotective of his throne, and before he died, Herod would be responsible for for murdering his own wife and several of his children and other family members to ensure that his throne was safe from being taken over in his lifetime, or he was hoping he would get to decide who had it after his death. And so the plan the angel gives to Joseph is to flee to Egypt. Egypt is ironically about a 90-mile journey and a three-day hike from Bethlehem. And it's ironic because Joseph had taken Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which was also a 90-mile hike and a three-day journey. And now another 90-mile journey is about to take place. Egypt had become a Roman province, and upon doing so, many Greek-speaking Jews made a settlement in Egypt. 
So there was already a place that a few Jews like Joseph and Mary and Jesus could fill at home in Egypt. And so for the second time, Joseph trusts the angel at his words and immediately obeys. The first time he trusted and obeyed the word of an angel, it meant taking on Mary and raising Jesus. But now this time it means leaving his homeland. We read verses 14 in the beginning of 15. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And I've been told by most of the sources I've used for studying that Herod only died a few months after Joseph got there. So this was not a long stay in Egypt. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. So I really want you to see this. Do you see the simultaneous happenings of an angel showing up and tasking Joseph? Hey, protect Jesus. And to me, if we're not careful, it might sound like an angel showing up to a slightly overweight young bookworm like me to say, hey, Superman's in trouble and you're the man for the job. (laughs) Right? And so there is this reality, this realistic task on Joseph to protect God in the flesh. Because he is fully man, and he's only a baby, and he is in danger. But then at the same time, we are about to re-enter the reality that, that Jesus is the answer to hundreds of prophecies and years in waiting. As Matthew tells us that he is fulfilling scripture or prophecy. Matthew does this a lot. I mentioned this a few weeks ago that Matthew, 12 times in his gospel account, does this, he says, and in this way, Jesus fulfilled the Scripture. Well, what does he mean by fulfill? Matthew is quoting Hosea here, namely Hosea 11.1, which says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So this really isn't even foretelling or future predicting prophecy for Hosea. It's just a mere statement of Israel's history. The Exodus. See, in Exodus 4, 22 and 23, we, we read that God gives Moses the words to say to the Pharaoh, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. So what is Matthew, or what's the Holy Spirit trying to say through Matthew? He's just taken a simple summation of early Israel's important history and said, Jesus fulfills this. Um, British Methodist commentator Joseph Benson would actually say, Now this deliverance of the Israelites, God's adopted son, was a type of his bringing Christ, his real son, from thence. And the meaning here is that the words were now, as it were, fulfilled anew and more imminently than before, Christ being in a far higher sense the son of God than Israel, of whom the words were originally spoken. Vince read for us Hebrews, the beginning of Hebrews, and actually all throughout Hebrews, the, the entire theme is how Jesus is the better everything. <laughs> He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the sacrificial system. Jesus is more imminently a far higher sense, the Son of God, than Israel. See, Matthew, with the primary audience being Jews, is wanting his audience to see that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the culmination and the fulfillment of the Jews. 
That is who was supposed to be the righteous person before God, Israel, right? As Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine. Vine and vineyard were a common symbol of Israel in the Old Testament. And so Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, takes Hosea 11.1 and says, Just as Israel went down to Egypt, so Jesus, God's son, goes down to Egypt. Do you hear that? Showing that what Israel should have been, Jesus is. And so Matthew's not done applying Old Testament Scripture to the happenings here. He moves from showing that Hosea 11.1 is fulfilled in Joseph's taking Mary and Jesus to Egypt to reveal also that the danger is real. (laughs) The innocent children die, and one of them could have been Jesus. Herod, true to history as we know him, massacres little ones. He says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So first, Matthew's mention of Hosea 11.1 should remind us of the end of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus. Right? I sent my son to, to Egypt. That's at the end of Genesis. Israel went down to Egypt. With that backdrop, we should immediately see Herod's actions under the light of Pharaoh's actions. We're told at the beginning of the book of Exodus that under the the bondage of slavery, Pharaoh began to see that Israel's race was beginning to get numerous. And so he plans, he's afraid that they might rebel. Oh, they know that there's lots of themselves. They might come and rebel against us. Pharaoh plans to abort and murder every male child. We know that Moses is born and placed in a basket to be saved, who in turn delivers the Egyptian people. If you've been here with us, we've been reading through the book of Acts before our um, series in uh, Advent. We just covered Stephen's long sermon before dying. And Stephen says of Moses, he says, God gave Israel salvation by Moses' hand. And Stephen also says that God sent Moses as both ruler and redeemer. And so these are names and titles fit for and more emphatically true and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? So what Matthew is doing is showing that Jesus is the greater Israel and he's the greater Moses. And then Matthew quotes Jeremiah here as well. He's quoting Jeremiah 31.15. And here in Jeremiah 31 is the, the backdrop of Jeremiah's words is that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian ruler, is gathering Israelites in Ramah which is a town in the vicinity of Bethlehem, to send them into exile. So the Babylonian exile is the backdrop of Jeremiah 31. Rachel, who died and was laid to rest in Bethlehem, so Genesis 35.19 tells us, Rachel, the matriarch of Israel's people, one of Israel's wives, is weeping because her kids, the Israelites, are being deported into exile. So Matthew, again, is taking an Old Testament prophecy and saying Jesus fulfills this more imminently, more severely. Because instead of exile, Bethlehem's sons, literal sons, not sons as the race of Israel, but truly the kids of Bethlehem and no more than age two, 
They're not in exile. They're being murdered. Also, Jeremiah 31.15 is a verse of sorrow over exile, but it's within a chapter or a prophecy that climaxes as Jeremiah talks about the new covenant, the redemption of the exiled race. Jesus is the new covenant. Jesus is redemption for his people. So even in this massacre of innocence is this promise. Matthew is saying that Jesus is the new covenant and is redemption. Do you hear that? You are troopers. I know this is like theology class. But now that we looked at all the biblical Old Testament fulfillments that Matthew brings out in this horrific event, we nevertheless are confronted with something on the human level. Because something tells me that though the Holy Spirit in Matthew reveals for us, even in this horrible catastrophe, that Jesus is showing himself to be the fulfillment of Israel and the true Messiah. Messiah. Meanwhile, Joseph is stressing and, take, and taking Mary and Jesus out of harm's way, and parents in Bethlehem are weeping and beside themselves in anguish and despair that their king murdered their babies. All because he was seeking out one baby who had escaped out of harm's way. And we might ask ourselves, why did the Prince of Peace usher in a king who murdered in his wake? How is he the Prince of Peace who brings peace on earth and goodwill to men also bringing this? And we have to, to realize this, that even though Jeremiah 31.15 prophesies this event, and even though Jesus' presence in some ways provoked this reaction, it was not Jesus' fault. It was Herod's fault. You see, even though Jesus does bring peace, Jesus also warns he brings a sword. He brings division. Matthew would record from the lips of Jesus later in his book, namely chapter 10. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Don't hear it this way. Jesus wants these things to happen. Hear it this way. Jesus' very presence will bring a response. People will either find him to be their true joy and peace as he is, or people will be fooled into thinking that their godless life is the life that they want. And when they rebel against their creator, they act in hostility. What's interesting is that Herod really never entertained Jesus. He didn't give him a chance. He didn't wait for him to grow up. He just made assumptions about what kind of king the, the king Jesus is when what do we know about Jesus when he finally explains what kind of king he is? What does he say to Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. Right? Jesus never went to Jerusalem and sought an earthly throne. Herod and whoever he wanted in line after him would have been fine all along. Jesus was no threat that, in the sense that Herod was worried about. But the very presence of Jesus... The very reality that here is the Messiah, here is God in the flesh, whose very existence demands all people 
to respond one way or the other. Herod is the one who responds violently. And though Jesus' presence provokes him, Herod is responsible for his actions. Do you hear that? Further saddening, it's not too long after this massacre, literally months, that Herod ends up dying anyways. We read, verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So a quick reminder about the story of Moses. We know that in adulthood, he sees an Egyptian mishandling a fellow Hebrew slave. And so Moses, he's angry and he murders the Egyptian. This, of course, gets the Egyptians angry with him. He leaves Egypt as a fugitive. He goes to Midian. He becomes a shepherd. And then after 40 years, Moses hears in a burning bush. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Hear the words again in Matthew 2.20, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So the Holy Spirit and Matthew are, are making sure that we really get Jesus is the Moses of his time. Jesus is the greater Moses, and instead of freeing people from the bondage of Egypt, Jesus frees people from the bondage of sin. However, though, we find that Joseph, for the umpteenth time, has shown himself to be, as I called, the greatest of theologians, the kind that doesn't talk, <laughs> but they just do. He doesn't talk, he just does. He's, he's taken his wife and has committed to raising Jesus without words, just at the command of God. He's taken Mary and Jesus out of his homeland for safety at the command of angels' words. But then to give you a familiar frame of reference when he's told to go back to Israel... It's kind of like hearing, go back to Woodland during the middle of the droughts of August. It's okay, <laughs> right? Like, did anybody else every August, are they on edge? <laughs> like the sound of thunder, the sight or the smell of smoke after the 2015 fires? Joseph probably heard that a massacre took place in their absence, and so he's returning to Israel. And Matthew tells us, but when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Archelaus was Herod the Great's son. And as you can kind of pick up from the context, Joseph's afraid to be in Judea. That's the region where Jerusalem and Bethlehem are. Just because Archelaus is on the throne, because Archelaus was so bad, like his dad, that eventually Caesar Augustus deposed him and banished him. <laughs> Now, when the pagan Roman guy says, I really hate that king, you know he has to be bad. Another angelic dream informs Joseph to instead take him to Galilee. More specifically, verse 23, it says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, whenever you read Luke alongside Matthew, we find out that for Joseph and Mary, this is returning home. Nazareth is their origin before Joseph and Mary left for Bethlehem about two to three years prior because of a census that called Joseph down there. But the last phrase about the prophets calling the Messiah a Nazarene, which follows a theme we've been following in Matthew because Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. He's the greater Israel. He's the greater Moses. He's the new covenant joy found among 
the lamenting of the innocents being massacred. Well, Matthew gives us no chapter and verse and no named prophet whenever he writes that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Why? Where did the prophets say that? Well, this verse really gets commentators and Bible teachers scratching their heads because they have nothing better to do. And so they come up with theories. Because there is no single clear prophecy that really even hints at the town Nazareth being associated with the Messiah. And so here is a common and what I find to be the best explanation. Now, first of all, before someone is skeptic and picky says, well, your theory, Kevin, is pretty far-fetched. Where we do need to agree here is that the Bible contains no errors. The Holy Spirit knew what he meant when he wrote this because, and also I don't necessarily believe that the biblical authors were just under hypnotic trances when they wrote the Bible. Some of them could have been in some places. But I even think Matthew was probably familiar with what he's saying. He knew, he knew what he's talking about. He would be called a Nazarene. That's what the prophet said. So here's the possibility. There are prophecies about the Messiah being a branch of Jesse, a branch of David. We know that Jesus' earthly lineage descends from King David, who in turn is a son of Jesse. Now, the word branch in the Hebrew has three consonants, N, Z, and R. You see where I'm going with this. Uh, I'll give you a few. I gave you a few branch prophecies on your outline. Here they are up here. But quickly, they describe the righteous branch as, quote, the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel, or he will be a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And so what's proposed is that Matthew or the Holy Spirit may be saying he will be called a Nazarene, as in he is associated with the righteous branch. And so it's no wonder that he resided in Nazareth, because both the Hebrew word for branch and the name of the town share those NZR consonants. So here's a contemporary picture that I could come up with. Suppose a, a well-known man a couple of years from now finds gold somewhere and he gets it really rich. Then suppose the irony of the situation of his origin was Orfino, Idaho. Orfino is Spanish for fine gold. So it's kind of ironic and kind of fitting. And I think that's the kind of connection that Matthew may be saying here. Even with the consonants of the prophecies, we find that Jesus is fulfilling them. That's kind of the statement being said. So I, I pondered and I puzzled over what to name this sermon because some of you are like, you've been all over the place today. Good luck trying to thread that one together, Kevin. I know what ideas or concepts are in my mind. I just don't know how to word them. Through these verses, I hope you heard two themes that work in our lives like two pedals on a bike, the left pedal and the right pedal. For one pedal... We have the overwhelming prophetic history culminating in Christ. We have prophecy after prophecy. We have angelic interventions. We have direct commands of God and forewarnings. And so to get all that supernatural, spiritual implications of destiny wrapped up into one word, I came up with providence. The providence of God, the plans of God, the it will happenness. That's a very heavy theologian word. It will happenness. Of God's happening. And then on the other hand, the, on the other pedal, we have the urgency and danger that's right there about to happen. We have the reality that Joseph is acting on obedience and the very real danger that Jesus is in. He's not just Superman, he's fully man. He's God, yes, but he's in the form of a baby. 
and just how I would never dropkick my baby Landon for fear of he dying, Joseph would be wise to not let the knowledge of his adopted son's origins fool him into thinking that he's indestructible. But rather, an angel of God has showed up and then signed Jesus' care into Joseph's hands. And so the second pedal is the persistence of man. And in our case today, namely Joseph, his being obedient, his propensity and track record to be an example of trusting the angelic commands at their words and obeying, even when obeying means very real and often arduous tasks, taking his wife and son, going to a foreign nation, going to Egypt, coming back when Herod was done, moving back to Nazareth when finding out that Archelaus was the ruler. And so, friends, our lives are to be lives of providence and persistence. Benson, who I mentioned before, says it this way. He says, let us in like manner remember it is God's part to direct and ours to obey. Nor can we be out of the way of safety and comfort while we are in the way of duty, following his directions and steering our course by the intimations of his pleasure. See, as Christians, we should live lives that have those two pedals, providence and persistence. Because here are the dangers. Like many things in, Christian, in the Christian life, we often have a tendency to elevate one, which leads to the minimization and sometimes the demonization of the other. See, some of us, myself, lean into and rely solely on the providence about to the point of shirking our duties as Christians. And we commit the same sins that James talks about, saying we have faith without works. God will provide for that person in need. I need not feel guilty. Bless you, person. Be warmed and filled. And we don't do our part. The, the world needs Jesus, but all we do is point fingers, blame, complain, and argue about how bad the world's being while never reaching out to anyone to lead them to Jesus. For other Christians, or maybe sometimes even for the same Christians in other areas or seasons of their life, the persistence in life is so great that providence is minimized. And this leads to anxiety and fear in those sobering moments when we remember that we're not in charge. We're not in control. And our micromanaging of everything has failed, right? We get so This never happens in Idaho, but we get so rugged and individual that we see no reason to be daily in His Word, nor do we understand faith and trusting in God when things don't look up. And so then we lean into our own effort and our own persistence and we're thinking, between God's idea of taking care of me and my ideas of taking care of me, I want to go with my ideas. When what we see in Joseph is what we see presented in Jesus, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Life is meant to be lived upholding providence. God does have a plan. God is bringing His will about. God does have something for me to be doing. God has tasked us with a great commission. God has given us a purpose. And we're supposed to be putting His providence into our lives through our persistence. I do what I hear Him saying. I respond when, I, when He calls me. I am in His Word so I know His heart and can be about His work. I pray seeking His will for my life. Do you hear that? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, there has to be a reason why you gave a man like Joseph a very precious gift for the world to protect. Father, we, as I said earlier in our series, that there are no recorded words of Joseph. 
But his actions certainly speak louder than any words he would have ever said. But it's not because Joseph was a great guy. It's because you're a great God. And many of us might think, I'm not a great person, but you're a great God. I pray that you would help us to balance these ideas in our lives that, Father, there is thankfully a meaning in our world. There is thankfully an end that's going to happen in our world. There's thankfully something that you've told us to be doing in our world. But, Father, that requires true, genuine effort and action on our part, that we're not supposed to just sit around and receive your word and claim that we're a Christian and go about our lives, but rather that oftentimes you task us to do things. Oftentimes it might be little things. Sometimes it might be big things like leaving leaving for a foreign country as you did with Joseph. Father, whatever the task may be, I just pray for hearts of receptive obedience. Mine foremost, that whatever you would say to us, that we would be obedient. Father, would you never, ever find us saying no to your word? But would you always find us surrendering, saying yes, because we trust that to be happy in Jesus, there's nothing else we can do but to trust and obey. Father, would you help us apply this to our lives as we go about our days and weeks? And would you give us the courage to do what you would have us do and also give us the wisdom to keep our mouths shut when we should as well. We ask and pray all these things through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Pastor Kevin Davis here at Woodland Friends Church. Hey, just want to chime in and do something I never wish I had to do. Uh, The ministry we use, so you can hear our sermons, is starting to charge money, but they're giving us a good deal since we've been with them. Only five bucks a month. Um, I don't know if you know this, Woodland Friends Church is a small church. We see about 30 to 50 people. We live out in the remote wilderness of Idaho. And we have pressing matters like missions and other things that we can be doing to help the family of God. But uh, we know this helps the family of God. And if you want to chip in and pay for one month, five bucks, that's a sweet deal. Um, that would be appreciated. Just write uh, with a memo in the check. Uh, online sermons, and the address is, is 1993 Woodland Road, K-A-M-I-A-H, that's Kamii, K-A-M-I-A-H, Idaho, 83536. We would appreciate it. We thank you very much for listening.